Welcome to All Rings Considered. This is episode 28, looking at book 3, chapter 6, The King of the Golden Hall. This what is a the... chapter. What a chapter. Heck, you know what, Pip? It's a, it's a heck of a chapter. Heck of a book. Heck of a chapter. Heck of, heck of some paragraphs in here, too. Some sentences, in fact. Yeah. Words. Um, it is. No, this is a great chapter. This was the chapter I thought we were doing last week. Uh, and then we didn't. And I was so disappointed because I had forgotten about the White Rider chapter. But here we are finally at the one I wanted to do because this is this is so good. This is one of the best. Um, well, okay. Maybe I should qualify myself. I don't necessarily think of this chapter as one of the best of the book. I do. It's up there. It's, it's, it's a really good chapter. It's got to be in the top. It's in top something. You know, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's my favorite. But it's so fun to analyze and to think about. Uh, at least that's that's my take on it. I don't know. What do you think, Pip? Uh, this is, for me, it's um, one of the chapters where I tear up. There are several oh, chapters okay. where uh, I'll tear up a little bit. One or two where I'll cry for sure. Um, this is one of them where I just kind of get just a little misty. Okay. Um, but let's let's get into it. Yeah, I guess I should summarize it so people know what... So people know what we're talking about. Um, so, chapter starts with Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Gandalf. They get to Edoras, which is the capital of Rohan. Uh, the Rohirrim, the people who live in Rohan, are the horse people. They're very good with horses. And when they arrive, though, they find that ooh, things are kind of in not going well. Um, the king, Theoden, is sort of locked up in his hall. Um, willingly, it seems. Like, he just keeps, keeps to himself in his hall. He has this advisor, Grima, who is telling him that all kinds of bad things are happening. They're very reluctant to see Gandalf. They think he's just there to cause trouble. But Gandalf manages to sort of coax Theoden out of his malaise and gets him to sort of walk outside and just kind of look out over the kingdom and see the daylight and, you know, put his hands on a sword and say, you know what, it's actually not as bad as you think. And this this seems to work. Gandalf seems to get Theoden out of his funk. Uh... He tells him, you have to take all your men, go to Helm's Deep, where you're going to have to defend yourself against Saruman's orcs, get your women and children out to this to the hills where they can take shelter, and send, send word for some other riders to come join you. The chapter basically ends there. Um, there's a, there's a little, some details in there about certain characters we can get into uh, if we'd like while we discuss it, but I think that's the backbone of the chapter there. Yeah, um, I'll start just uh, right off the bat. Uh, you have some uh, really amazing um, description of Edoras. Um, you have the flowers on the rolling hills, like out in the plain. Yeah. Uh, uh, I say rolling hills, uh, but in this like rolling uh, grassland um, out in front mm-hmm. of of the the great hall, and there are these flowers that are said to to be to blossom year round and they're on top of the uh uh the grave mounds where the the elders and the the um Rohirrim of old have been buried what a great sort of uh mirroring of uh, you know the tales of uh of you know ancients being you know lifted up into the sky and you know okay the the dead are are somehow above us and you know in the uh, in the stars above but here um, these flowers are described as stars, and they're here on the earth, uh, which is very Rohirrim. Yes. Yeah, I mean, on the note of things being very Rohirrim, 
the what you're getting at there is the Rohirrim have a sort of feel to them, right? And and this is what I think is so great about this chapter. This chapter has uh, it's one of those chapters that's very theme heavy, and the, th- the chapter's theme is essentially the same theme as the entire book, which is that we live in this sort of unjust, dying world. And by unjust, I mean to say like it's not fair that we live in a dying universe, but we but we do like that's just the reality. Everything's dying, and that's not great or fair but so it goes but there's some kind of sliver of hope for what's going to come after our world has died uh, and i mean that in sort of the most metaphorical sense too and the rohirrim themselves embody this they embody it just in everything that gives them the, the feel you're talking about that rohirrim feel there's a lot of aesthetic tricks happening here and a lot of linguistic tricks that Tolkien has set out throughout the whole chapter, as well as just with the Rohirrim in general, to get that theme across. And the biggest one he did, and the one I have so much to talk about here, is Tolkien made the Rohirrim similar to, not identical to, but similar to the actual Anglo-Saxon people of uh, Great Britain who who sort of founded England, as we know it, uh, back between the years of 500 CE to 1100 CE, so a long, long time ago, but actual real historical people who had a real historical culture and a real historical language, and Tolkien borrowed all that, and he put, he made the Rohirrim really, really similar. And the reason he borrowed that is because those people actually did have this really strong literary tradition of writing on that exact same theme. And then those people kind of saw that theme play out in their own culture because these people end up losing they end up being conquered they end up getting conquered by the normans and you know they certainly have an impact we still speak english today but the reality is all the people who you know were, were ruling uh, anglo-saxon england were kicked out they were deposed uh they were they were no longer allowed to and yes yeah, so, so that that theme of decline of death of decay of sorrow is just embodied in, in any kind of use and I'll, I'll pause there for a second i sure. have a lot of examples of this use and that's basically all I have today, quite frankly. There's tons of examples of this being used. But it, it, it's very clever stuff. Um, it, it, it's... Okay, you know what? Yeah, I want to stop. <laughs> well, before we get into the examples, I've got sort of uh, like my like thematic, uh, like what I've been taking with me along this chapter. Uh, mm-hmm. And then maybe we can point out both of those. Um, I think... One of the great things about Tolkien is how many different stories are weaved into a single great narrative. Um, we have this uh, mini story, which is uh, kind of a trope of being brought before a king, and we see that before where the hobbits are brought before um, you know the elves and you know their different kingdoms, and you're brought before the leaders, um, and usually that's uh, somebody humble coming before somebody great. Um, but here we actually kind of have the opposite where uh, we have travelers out of memory beings, you know, Gandalf is sort of this supernatural figure. Um, Aragorn is kind of out of the past. Uh, Legolas is timeless. Um, kind of just forget about Gimli. So he's kind of out of memory. Uh, and they're coming across, they start from the, you know, the, the stars and the flowers of, you know, they start from the, outside of Theoden's current present moment. And they start with that poem that Aragorn recites of just the ancient uh, Errol 
of uh, of the Rohirrim, and they're mm-hmm. all sort of out of time, in a way, coming bringing towards the present Theoden. And so it's almost like you know, usually you have this coming to the king where it's a humble, uh, you know, modest person coming for somebody great, but here it's kind of the opposite. You have like these amazing. Uh, Mm. you know characters that are like up and beyond the king in a way where you know yeah. Gandalf is a you know sort of Christ figure and Aragorn's really Theoden's king you know the elves are beyond humans and yeah. Gimli <laughs> but yeah. the Gimli, yeah. Yeah, um, he's there uh, <laughs> so it's kind of just the reverse story uh, where it's like oh even kings have this figures that are, are greater than them mm-hmm that's a that's a really cool sort of inverse. I had not picked up on that. It 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 makes me think about it's sort of a hypothetical. If Theoden represents like the Anglo-Saxon king or an Anglo-Saxon king, the Anglo-Saxons were pretty rarely united um, in their time. It wasn't until sort of the end of their their time that they got united. But uh, if he's just sort of like a king, this would be like the equivalent of like you said, sort of like Christ or like an angel coming down to visit with. Um, one of the Roman emperors mm-hmm. and um, a super magic, you know, I guess the elf can say the same, quite frankly. <laughs> and, you know, and, and like the king, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that Theoden doesn't know that either, right? Right. Yeah, there's even a guard, Hama, uh, who's mm-hmm. great, by the way. He's a great character. Yeah, love Hama. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't really think about that at all. Um, but sure. <laughs> I do like Hama. I do want to talk about him. Okay. Um, well, we need to figure out what order then we should tackle this this sort of beast of a chapter, uh, so that this isn't all just totally chaotic or it's not it's not either chaotic or one sided. Um, not really sure how to do that. I mean, Pip, you know, since this is my podcast, it's oh my god. Uh, so I have a this story. We got to tell everybody about this. We do have to tell the story. So I, I went to our high school reunion. Yes. Um, and Pip and I went to high school together. Reconnecting, oh, uh, reconnecting with some some old some old friends and somebody. Wait, you know, make asked, it clear. I did. I did not go to this. Yeah, reunion. Charlie was not here. I was not there. And yes. somebody asks me, you know, how's Charlie doing? Uh, and uh, you know, I was talking about him. And she says, "Oh yeah, and you have to you have to send me a link to Charlie's podcast." Right. <laughs> and I said, "Excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> ma'am." <laughs> I'd like to speak to your manager. <laughs> but this this is a company. God bless that uh, person. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Well, speaking of power struggles, how mm. about this how about this power struggle at the gate? Um so we have this guardsman Hama. Uh and Hama uh forbids the you know, it's his his command to uh prevent these travelers to enter the uh enter the hall with their weapons mm-hmm. and this really kind of bizarre uh well i say bizarre it's uh, what, do you, what do you think about this this um contention between aragorn really not wanting to put down elendil um yeah or uh um I, I don't think it's bizarre haven't we seen aragorn get touchy about this but wasn't he touched about it in lorian there's some other point when he gets touchy about elendil not elendil sorry what's the uh Onderil. jeez yeah okay when he gets touched by Onderil in general, um, I don't I didn't think it was bizarre. I think, or at least no more bizarre than it ever is, which is that, why is this sword such a big deal? But um, I don't know, what, what were you taking from it that was 
weirding you out. Well, I thought the interesting part was actually, so Aragorn eventually gives up his sword, and then uh, the same thing goes with Gandalf, and Hama says, so Hama says, Yet in doubt a man of worth will trust to his own wisdom. I believe you are friends and folk worthy of honor who have no evil purpose. You may go in. Um, and allows Gandalf to enter with his staff. And so that's actually, you know, we see this question come up uh, quite a bit where you have your your marching orders and you have these characters at certain points in time uh, disobey their commands um, because their hearts tell them to. Because uh, mm-hmm. you had this with the... Um, uh, uh, I'm forgetting all the characters' names. This <laughs> um, yeah, the, this is um, Gandalf. No, Aomir, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, yeah. who you know gave the characters horses, and you'll see this later with the um, the guardsman uh, who in uh, in Gondor. Just I need a list of all the characters. Um, but yeah, so you have this recurring theme of each character being able to decide. Uh, a man in in doubt, a man of worth, will trust to his own wisdom. Mm-hmm. Well, hold up. On the note, since you're sort of starting at the door here, I actually think maybe this is, should be our organization. Maybe we can just go through the chapter chronologically yeah. and comment on some of the things. So, it's a bold choice, but <laughs> yeah, you know, this, is, you can... this isn't your grandmother's podcast. <laughs> We're going to go chronologically. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Start from the beginning. Start Here at the, the beginning. Events in the and chapter. then hold up. No, no, wait. Just bear with me for a moment, okay? You start at the beginning. And then you go to the end. <laughs> and you sort of do it in that order. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I read the chapter like that. That's that's kind of messed up, but okay. <laughs> no no wonder you thought it was terrible. You, I mean you said you were crying, I mean that how bad <laughs> it was. How bad it was. <laughs> Did did I did I show? You? I mean, you know, we we've talked about this, of course. The uh, the people there was some episode way back in book one. We talked, you and I talked about people not. I think I used the word sort of engaging with it authentically, like engaging with this book authentically, mm. and sort of turning to hyperbole all the time. And I saw another example of that on some Twitter exchange recently, and not between anyone famous, just random people I follow. And they get to talking about it and they say, oh, yeah, you know, I don't really like this book. And some people are talking about it and goes, yeah, you know what? The writing is just dreadful. And I just like, why, why do we need to be so hyperbolic? You don't need to like this book. But there's no way that this writing is dreadful. There's just not. That's just like this, this need for hyperbole. It's anytime we discuss something is so, so obnoxious. And it's just like you're clearly not actually authentically engaging with this. You know what I mean? You're just, yeah. you're just not. Because it's like, just, oh, there's no way you could read this. Popular thing isn't isn't my cup of tea, so maybe I'm smarter than mm. I seem. Maybe it's um, actually the worst thing ever written. <laughs> so I, I do have one last thing to say about Hama before we before we move on from the from the gate. Um, okay. Well, I was going to go back in time before the gate anyway. But you 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 finished up with Hama. Okay. Then... So Hama, really badass. Um, he. Uh, Aragorn says that he's going to, uh, you know, keep his sword, and he's not clear that, you know, Theoden, uh, even though he's lord, like, I'm Aragorn, you know, heir of Gondor, and Hama s- 
steps swiftly before the doors, barring the way. Uh, his sword was now in his hand and the point towards the strangers. So Hama, uh, like, steps forward and, like, points his sword at the three or four, like, gods of Middle-earth, you know, demigods of Middle-earth, and says, mm. oh, uh, no, I'm sorry. You can't come through. Um, yeah, anyway, Hama's great. Yeah, that's an awesome moment. But you were mentioning the um, the writing. I, I do have a quote from from the inside of the hall. Once we come okay. In. Wait, let me let me get a couple of things from before they go inside. Just a couple of notes. Yeah, so let's, let's if so if we read this from the lens that I'm coming at it from, which is Tolkien sort of harnessing all these aesthetic and linguistic I call them tricks. It's not really quite fair. That makes it sound worse than it is. But these these aesthetic and linguistic, I don't know, methods to express the theme of a dying world. Uh, he does it, again, first by making the Rohirrim essentially Anglo-Saxons. Um, I want to first address the fact that Tolkien, apparently in a letter, not apparently, he did, in a letter, he sort of denied that he made the Rohirrim Anglo-Saxons. He, he said that, look, I made the language the language of the Anglo-Saxons, but, you know, that was it. But that's clearly not the case. And I, I don't know quite what inspired him to write that letter because, it, um, you know, the the guy who really pioneered thinking about these Rohirrim as Anglo-Saxons is, is a scholar named Tom Shippey. And, and Shippey just outright says, this is just, the, the Rohirrim are almost identical to Anglo-Saxons. They really only have one difference. And, and that difference is their uh, skill in horse riding, which the Anglo-Saxons are not particularly good with horses uh, in real history. And that's about it. I mean, almost everything else here is just pretty authentically Anglo-Saxon. So I'm not really sure why Tolkien said that or what he was thinking of. To his credit, the exact line, I have it here, Tolkien says that, um, he says that they're not meant to resemble the Anglo-Saxons uh, except in a general way due to their circumstances. A simpler and more primitive people living in contact with a higher and more venerable culture and occupying lands that had once been part of its domain. So I guess maybe if Tolkien thinks that most of this stuff is kind of surface level, and that any culture who would be sort of living on, or any more primitive culture that would be living in sort of once former, like former formerly imperial lands uh, would be like this, I guess then maybe he'd have a case. But I, I think it's a weak case, because some of the stuff that Rohirrim do the Rohirrim do here, like have a mead hall where their king lives, um, is pretty specific. You know what I mean? At right. the very least, it's <laughs> it's Northern European. Like I, I don't think you know you can really transplant that some to, to any culture across the world, across history, that was more primitive than the neighboring culture. So, uh, I, okay, I don't really buy it. I kind of buy Shippy here, where he he says, "Look, they just they're the Anglo-Saxons straight up." Um. So some of the stuff he does though right away, really neat. He has this great line on five oh page five oh seven in our our editions here, right at the beginning of the chapter, where Legolas is describing uh what he sees, how he sees Edoras. Um he says that the light of it shines far over the land. And that's been pointed out in the reader's companion that that is well, sorry, that was not the reader's companion, that's pointed out in Tom Shippey himself who I'm going to lean on heavily for this, because, again, he wrote about this idea a lot. Um, 
but I'm pretty sure Tom Shippey himself pointed this out, that that line is straight out of Beowulf. Hmm. Like, straight out of Beowulf. It's literally the line from Beowulf here. Like, this is it. Just in the, just in the chapter. Could be so, a coincidence, though, because these aren't the Anglo-Saxons. Yeah, that, I have a know, letter. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> let me take it back. <laughs> Retraction. Also, do you think should be considered that? Maybe we should let him know. <laughs> he um, should. He should know. He should. So, um, yeah. I mean, what I think is happening here, Tolkien's going to leverage this feeling, um, and just sprinkle it all throughout the chapter, and so we can hear that line, and something about that line sounds old. Something about it sounds ancient like from the sort of old world that's died that has died and because it is it, it actually literally is from that and then we have the song that Aragorn sings shortly after that um Legolas says that it's laden with the sadness of mortal men and the song has the line where now the horse and the rider that's the first line of the whole poem and that line is basically identical to another line from not from Beowulf this time but from another Anglo-Saxon poem called the Wanderer uh, where it, it has basically the same thing as it's like where has the where has the horse gone where the writer same basically thing here so uh, two two great little uses of actual Anglo-Saxon literature Anglo-Saxon language to get that feeling and get that atmosphere and you get this richness too, even for somebody like like take me for example, somebody who hasn't studied, you know, in depth the same, uh, you know, scholarship. Uh, but you, you have this as just part of your culture that it has a richness to it, something that feels very old and feels very um, like connected to a part of the world. Exactly. What's also neat here, now that we're getting into the hall, is we've talked about. In book one, I described the landscape therein as sort of this Celtic Britain landscape. And I didn't know what to make of that yet at the time. I did talk about how, you know, the books are going to sort of progress through civilization. So we start at the outskirts of it and we sort of get into the ruins of the great civilizations and we get into the current civilizations. And I think um, we can kind of merge these two together a little bit. The idea of the Celtic landscape of book one combined with we know this, that there's a sense of progressing into civilization here. We can combine that now with the Rohirrim who do show us um, chronologically um, the post-Celtic civilization, post-Celtic Britain, so the Anglo-Saxon England at this point uh, in that culture. And... So we're progressing both through history and both through like the stages of civilization in these books. Mm. Um, so the point we're at now is the point we have passed the ruins of civilization. We're entering into the next stage, a sort of a relatively primitive civilization. And by book five, we're going to go into high civilization. Yeah, I had never um, noticed that before. That's really yeah. cool. And the Anglo-Saxons kind of represented a transition there, right? So, you know, it's it's been argued, I'm not, I'm not saying I endorse this, but it has been, just in case any of my, in case any people went to grad school with me or listening to this, I'm not saying I endorse this. Please do not get mad at me. But Is that it a type has of been argued. attitude that your <laughs> friends from grad school had? It's, 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 been, it's been argued 
Um, and I just know, cause you know, you had, you know, I met all the kinds of people who would just shit on you for saying the wrong thing. <laughs> so you just, you just always, that's, that's a trick you, you learn pretty quickly. Uh, is you just say, well, it's argued. <laughs> I don't agree with it, but so it, so it's said. Um, but it has been argued that essentially the history of, Western Europe in the Middle Ages is a history of imperialism from this sort of core in France and Germany that sort of expands outward and it sort of colonizes uh, the fringes of Europe. And mm-hmm. Britain would very much be a fringe, uh, including the Anglo-Saxons were a fringe, and they were sort of absorbed by the imperialistic core, uh, in this case represented by the Normans, uh, who were the ones who conquered the Anglo-Saxons. So the Anglo-Saxons themselves and their whole feel are going to represent that progression of, of history, like primitive, that's going to get conquered and absorbed by somebody great. So, Well, yeah. speaking, speaking I of... I want to come back to that, by the way. I want to come back to that yeah. theme in a moment, but I'm, I'm going to turn over to you now that we are, we've, caught, we've caught up now to, to Hama and they've entered the, the hall. And they boy, is this episode hall. going to take a whole long time. <laughs> it's fine with uh, me. Um, so they entered in the hall, and I just wanted to pull out a line uh, for the description of the hall. Many woven cloths were hung upon the walls, and over their wide spaces marched figures of ancient legend, some dim with years, some darkling in the shade, but upon one form the sunlight fell, or, but, but upon one form the sunlight fell, a young man upon a white horse, he was blowing a great horn, and his yellow hair was flying in the wind. The horse's head was lifted, and its nostrils were wide and red as it neighed, smelling battle afar. Foaming water, green and white, rushed and curled about its knees. And I just think that's such a, uh, a powerful description of the scenery of entering this dark hall with tapestries and history, but one one scene is lit up from mm. from the light. That's just I don't know. It's great. Yeah. Um, I, I have something cool to say about that um, moment as well, or at least the moment right before it, when he's describing just the whole hall in general. If I may borrow, again, an argument by, you guessed it, Tom Shippey. Uh, Shippey points out in the description of the hall here that all the terms are words that are derived from Old English, except for one. Uh, it says that there's a louver in the roof, L-O-U-V-E-R. Uh, and that's a that's a French borrowing. Uh, but Shippey says this really plays right into the aesthetic feel of the whole thing again. The Anglo-Saxons, in this case the Rohirrim, are going to have their culture infringed upon, and they're going to, to lose eventually. They're going to fade out. And this sort of shows... Um, the dominant culture, sort of like maybe Gondor in the Rohirrim's context, is going to creep up on them and sort of eventually, you know, eh, they're not going to last. Um, also in this little word here, this one, the one romance-derived word in like the whole paragraph. So. Yeah. Well, we kind of get to... You don't to... sound convinced. <laughs> uh, I don't buy it. Like... <laughs> I'm going to get you the book. Let me get my, let me get my dictionary out here. But so we, we reach the part that's uh, in this chapter, kind of the more obvious um, thematic uh, happening, although, you know, not any less than some of the more subtle parts. Um, Gandalf and Theoden and Wormtongue have this sort of uh, three-person dialogue <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, 
where you know it's it's back and forth with Wormtongue sort of speaking for Theoden at certain parts. Um, and I wanted to point out it's really just a uh, you know you know what I'm not too worried about it. This is a podcast about a book, so we don't really have any Trump supporters listening. Um, yeah, but, but yeah. Wormtongue says you know uh, he comes out and. Gandalf is here, and and Wormtongue, uh, his first time Wormtongue really interjects himself, he is saying, Thaden, yeah, you, you should be upset at Gandalf. Um, you know, you're, and he just says this stuff that kind of doesn't really relate. It's, you know, your son's dead. Uh, you should feel grief. The Dark Lord is, you know, is stirring. Feel some fear. And then he says, Gandalf, I've got a nickname for him. Laugh spell. Uh, Ill news. And it's just very, like, I can't help but in present time just feel like, you know what, that's, uh, Mordor is rising, that's ill news. (laughs) Ill news. Uh, Ill news media. Yeah. Um, so I apologize for that. Yeah, well, so on the note, though, too, of Wormtongue, the Lot spell, so all these words in the Rohirrim are Old English words, so are their names. So, you know, Grima is Old English for a mask because of course he is you know hiding his true intentions lost spell is uh it is it literally does mean ill news bad news something like this but uh what interests me too is is Wormtongue's whole character is again sort of cribbed from beowulf beowulf has this character in the poem named unferth and unferth is a bad person who is an advisor to the king and who is basically just there in the story to be an obstacle and a bit of a roadblock um, and, and give the king the bad advice and say, don't trust Beowulf. He won't do the right job. He He's, you know, blah, blah, blah. He, he's not as strong as he thinks he is. And Unferth uh, gets a bit more redemption than Wormtongue does <laughs> in Beowulf. But that use of that character, again, it's it's just, it, it it's so impressive that he's able to draw on this stuff. I, I really don't think it's just like lazy copying. I think it's it's careful and it's deliberate what he's trying to borrow to get the vibe and the aesthetic he wants. Right. Oh, you know, I guess it's worth pointing out that um, Gandalf doesn't do anything really to uh, to free Theoden, other than show him mm-hmm. uh, show him his own land. Um, yeah. Gandalf has this quote. Uh, now, Theoden, son of Thengel, will you hearken to me? said Gandalf. Do you ask for help? He lifted his staff and pointed to a high window. There the darkness seemed to clear, and through the opening could be seen high and far a patch of shining sky. Not all is dark. Take courage, Lord of Mark, for better help you will not find. No counsel have I to give to those that despair, yet counsel I could give and words I could speak to you. Will you hear them? And so it's it's really just Gandalf saying, hey, uh, look <laughs> um, yeah yeah get yourself in that moment when he he goes out there and looks is is such a great one uh it's something i've i've started here about when they're on the it's on it should be on the next page from where you were um where it says from the porch upon the top of the high terrace they could see beyond the stream the green fields of rohan fading into distant gray curtains of wind-blown rain were slanting down uh etc cetera, etc cetera. just i mean some beautiful 
landscape description of like a storm and then it says suddenly through a rent in the clouds behind them a shaft of sun stabbed down the falling showers gleamed like silver and far away the river glittered like a shimmering glass and theoden just has the simple line of it is not so dark here yeah um and i think there's this great theme of you know redemption for theoden being brought to him through uh you know, these figures that that don't they can't do anything for him except give him, you know, uh maybe a little bit of uh encouragement to do things himself. Mm-hmm. And to realize that he himself is things are not as bad as as the despair that he's been feeling. Uh he is stronger than he realizes. Um and, you know, these yeah, I just something that just strikes me is just these figures. They can't offer him an army, you know. They can't offer him physical help in that sense. They, it's help for him to help himself. I don't know as cliche as that sounds. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I absolutely. It's ultimately like it has to come from within you, and there's almost this sort of modern, you know, depression thing happening here, right? Like Theoden, sort of by modern standards, he he's depressed, right? And Gandalf is simply just the the counselor, basically, who's, you know, he can't actually change him, but he can kind of just point out to him the things that he could use to help himself. Um, I don't know. I probably shouldn't take that analogy too far, but. Uh. <laughs> you know, there's um, something interesting, too. Uh, at the end of this, uh, Gandalf is given shadow facts, whereas before it was only mm. lent. Um I think yeah. there is a bit of uh, proper sacrifice in this way to uh, to Gan- what well, you know what Gandalf represents um, here. Whereas before it was only sort of a half-hearted, eh, okay, like yeah, take what you need, uh, spiritual figures, you know, and just leave me alone. To a kind of a genuine gratitude. Okay. Um, Oh, uh, we were talking about uh, where's the horse and the rider. Um, mm-hmm. There's a great, I don't know if you marked it, uh, there's a great uh, line too when the company looks eastward, thinking about Frodo, and it says, The others too now turn their eyes eastward. Over the sundering leagues of land, far away they gaze to the edge of sight, and hope and fear bore their thoughts still on, beyond dark mountains to the land of shadow. Where now was the ring bearer? And so you have that kind of refrain of, uh, yeah. of that question being asked about Frodo. Yeah, where now? Yeah, which is also a, there's a historical genre of literature going that, like happening there. It's it goes by the name. It was really popular in sort of medieval poetry and stuff, uh, and they use the Latin term for it, ubi sunt, where are, and um, so to hear that it's almost the same words too being sort of repeated, where are in this case where now, mm-hmm. same thing. Um, and yeah, and the Wanderer belongs to that genre. So, right, cool line here, by the way, with Theoden during the the long. It's interesting how long it does take for Theoden to get sort of fully coaxed out of his funk. Right, it there's sort of a number of steps he has to go through, and so we're actually sort of pretty deep into it when he has the line where he says, uh, "Alas, alas, that these evil days should be mine." and should come in my old age instead of that peace which I have earned. The young perish and the old linger, withering. 
And then Gandalf says, your fingers would remember their old strength better if they grasped a sword hilt. And I like the, the, the fact that this line essentially is identical in meaning to the line Frodo had with Gandalf way back in book one, chapter two, where he says, I, I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf says, so do all, so does it, so do all who live to see such times, but that's not for them to decide. And uh, all we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. It's, it's almost the same thing here, right? Just sort of spoken in a more elevated way to match Theoden in his more elevated and archaic form of speech, pattern of speech, right? So instead of, I wish none of this had happened, we get, alas, that these evil days should be mine. And instead of Gandalf saying, you know, all we have to decide is what to do, we get the very medieval, well, your fingers would remember their old strength better if they grasped a sword hilt. And, yeah, take the uh, symbolic item of action. Exactly, yeah. And Tolkien's great at that. I mean, we, I think we've mentioned in this podcast, another one of Shippy's observations that the in The Hobbit, the book The Hobbit, it ends with, you know, Bilbo telling the dwarves, you're always welcome for tea, and the dwarves saying things like, farewell, um, <laughs> maybe we meet again. And, and, and Shippy makes the point, you know, they're saying the same exact thing in those different modes of communication. So Tolkien was sort of the master at that, right, of, of leveraging different different modes to, to express the same sentiment. So we're getting kind of a little bit over time, a little bit. Uh, yeah, just a bit. <laughs> if this so, is what uh, ends up being as long as the Council of Elrond episode, that's it, kind of crazy. It's a good chapter. There's it a lot is a good chapter. Here. It really is one of my favorites. Um, so do you have a favorite line? I do. I, I think it's just got to be that song at the beginning, the Where Now song. So let me just, just read out most of it here. Um, where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Where is the hand on the harp string and the red fire glowing? Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? They have passed like rain on the mountain, like a wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills into shadow. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Passed like rain on the mountain. Like, I still think of that image sometimes. It's just what it comes to me now, thanks to Tolkien. So, I mean, as, as you know, since, you know, we're two hikers. Uh, I mean, sometimes that comes to me when you you hike and stuff in the mountains. You know, that rain comes in. And I guess it's the rain shadow effect. There's some sort of atmospheric reason why it, it rains in the mountains, and um, it can sometimes like pass through that kind of quickly, though. And just the rain gets dumped on you, and then it passes through. And so I don't know. It's a very sort of real image for me. A very vivid one. It's not like it's not just here on the page. It's like, oh, it's it sounds pretty. Sort of it's something we've yeah. experienced. Yeah. Right. Yeah, actually, and coming up, we may get a episode in uh, some special locations. Uh, yeah, so stay, stay tuned. tuned. We're yeah. excited. We'll do some on-location episodes. Um, but let's see. Favorite line for me? <clears throat> mm. I have one here. Um, this is when Thaden is on his way to view upon his land. Slowly Theoden left his chair. A faint light grew in the hall again. The woman hastened to the king's side, taking his arm, and with faltering steps the old man came down from the dais and placed, paced softly through the hall. Wormtongue remained lying on the floor. They came to the doors, and Gandalf knocked. Open, he cried. The lord of the mark comes forth. And I think what just what really gets me about this line of segment is... And with faltering steps, the old man came down from his dais, where I just, you know, it's somebody 
who is it's it's just so clear how much he is struggling to make his way to a point where he can actually see and that's you know faltering steps from an old man like that's that's a trope but that's uh powerful yeah yeah all right well so what was um, this chapter? Just a great great chapter title name king of the golden hall i think this is one of the better ones i'll, I'll give it uh you, should, you know, I'm wavering between the eight and the nine. I'll probably have to go with the eight. Just go to but, nine. Uh, you think? Round it up. Just, yeah. Go to nine. Yeah, I'll give it a nine then. Nine rings. It just sounds. It just sounds really pretty. I, I think it's, it's it's a powerful image, and it makes you think about. Like as soon as I hear it, I actually don't take it very literally, and you're almost not meant to. Like Eteros is beautiful, but it also. The whole theme of the chapter, right, is a, of a dying world and a dying dying society. I kind of get that vibe even even went before reading the chapter, just hearing that sort of hyperbolic golden hall. I'm thinking, yeah, right. So right. I think it plays really well. Well, all right. Um, join us next time for Helm's Deep. Mm-hmm.